This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I welcome Dion Moult. Dion is an architect and is known for his work in the software world as a developer of 100% free open source software. Most notably, the Blender BIM add-on, which extends Blender, which is also free and open source, to provide features used by architects, engineers, and the construction industry. Its features range from producing CAD drawings to doing building physics simulations to generate facility management registries from a building information database and more. In other words, it makes Blender handle and generate BIM data in IFC format, therefore enabling you to author and document BIM data fully to ISO standards. It's also worth noting that Dion is just one developer of Blender BIM. You can also help make it what it should become by contributing to the project in various ways. Through monetary donations, of course, through the use of it and providing feedback, but also by contributing to the source code yourself. There's actually a refreshing amount of momentum in the open source architecture community that's driving these community-driven AEC tools, and they are welcoming to new individuals with open arms. I'll have links to how you can get involved in the show notes. In this conversation, we talk about the ethics of proprietary software vendors and file formats, change management, open source software, Blender BIM, Open BIM, the open source architecture community, also known as OSArch, the problem of proprietary file formats and the software companies that create lock-in, making informed choices about project development workflows relating to technology and software, thinking bigger about the ecosystems of our built environments, who should own and have access to data about our built environment, and so much more. So without further ado, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Dion Moult. Dion, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. What's interesting from my point of view about the work that you're doing and Blender BIM and, and building BIM tools on top of general purpose modeling, I mean, that's probably the story for for some other really popular tools out there. But man, there just seems to be a renaissance in the, the Blender story in the last few years. It just seems to really have picked up a lot of steam. I know it's been around for quite a long time, and I thought maybe we could just start off with a quick uh, Blender history story, uh, use type, stuff like that, to give people a little bit of familiarity, just in case. I'm sure they all know of Blender, heard of it, and probably have used it. But for those of the audience who hasn't, can you take us through a, a quick bit of the history, and then and then I would love to get into the Blender BIM story. Uh, absolutely, Blender started quite some time ago. I, I wouldn't. I, I'd have to check the wiki page for it, but I would not be surprised if it were twenty years old, for example, or more. It started as a uh, in-house uh, tool for artists, and that was always its target market. It was for CG artists, so computer graphics artists, the type of artist who you would hire to be a specialist in 3D modeling, in animation, in rigging, in texturing, in rendering, compositing, or uh, video sequencing. So it was that whole domain of work. And it has been slowly growing as a uh, open source tool and is currently used in many high-profile uh, studios around the world. Um, I think one of the earliest use cases of Blender in the Hollywood scene was the early Spider-Man movies with the original actor, not, not the third one they have now. So it has been used in, in production environments for quite some time now. And since the beginning, it has changed a little bit. It, it started off as a proprietary tool, and the firm was called uh, not a number and they nearly went bankrupt and they decided to release the tool for free and open source. And since then, and forevermore, as is legally bound in their licensing, they will remain free and open source. I don't really expect architects to have used Blender that much, to be honest, because it was never intended for architects to be using it. 
yeah. was designed for an artist to use. Yeah, I would say if it is being used by architects, it's probably more on that strictly visualization side. That's right. That's right. And and the reason it's it went open source, you said, was because they they almost went bankrupt. But as far as the development of the tool in general, was it? And obviously showing my ignorance here, but do you know the story there? Was it developed because of the tools that people were using they weren't satisfied with or they didn't want to be under the thumb of these other technology companies and they wanted something more extensible? Or um, No, I don't know the story there. However, I have a few conjectures. Uh, back then, computers were a little bit more approachable. I mean, if you rewind a little bit, it was a free software was quite normal. The concept for somebody to receive source code whenever they got they purchased a piece of software was very normal. So people expected to have a lot of freedom and ability to manipulate the software they were working with. They were not closed black boxes. You didn't have these subscription models. You didn't have clouds where you couldn't control what was going on, didn't know what was going on. You were really in control of, of your data. So many firms would often create their own tools. And for example, Pixar right now, they had their own complete own mm -hmm. tool set. And the way that industry works is that they don't really care what tool you know. It's do you have an innate ability as an artist? And that's why we're mm -hmm. hiring you, not because you know a tool. That's ridiculous. And once we do hire you, here you go. Here's the tool we do use. You have two weeks to learn it, have fun. And then we'll, we'll start cracking on some real work after two weeks. So it's a bit of a, a different mindset, really. So I would not be surprised if people developed it simply because that was normal. It's not yeah. because they had no choice, but because it was considered normal for every artist to be able to craft their own paintbrush. Yeah, it, it is definitely typical in the visual effects industry. I mean, we've all heard kind of, or I don't know if we've all heard, but but there's definitely stories out there of everybody building these crazy pipelines uh, that are that are totally specific to the way the workflows that are being developed for the specific story that they're trying to tell oftentimes, right? We've, we've seen Correct. that evolution over time with Pixar, as you mentioned, where you know, it was fur and then it was water. And, you know, it's like there, there's things that they are specifically building to enable their storytelling. And so, yeah, I agree. It's definitely something that they've always felt like this innate requirement, I guess, is is to have the abilities to build tools specific to their needs. And, and that is a very different mindset. And I think, you know, you bring up a great point there. You know, I've taught in architecture schools and I've taught students and the, the question is always like, what tool should I learn so that I can get a job? And I think it's it's kind of laughable, right? It's like, well, you know, nobody who's going to come into a firm can learn a piece of software as fast as you can, right? It's always the young minds that are the most able, I feel like, to pick up new software. And it's more about concepts and fundamentals, and especially now with coding taught in schools where if you can prove that you can solve problems, that is way better than knowing a specific name brand piece of software. And there's still so many firms out there who the very first question they ask is, do you know X piece of software? Because they want to plug them right into an assembly line of drawing output. And that's, that is, I think, a really unfortunate kind of side effect of the process that, that our profession kind of willingly goes along with. Yes, it's a shame, really. I think we should be inspired by these pipelines of artists who, who, who have a vision and will do whatever technological feat they need to do to mm -hmm. make that vision come to life. I think we need, we need to take some cues from, from their techniques. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. So talk about Blender as a tool and kind of, because I think, you know, as far as architecture goes, you mentioned earlier on, Blender was not designed for that specific use case, but why is it appealing to you as a platform? Is it strictly because it's open source and because it is something you can build upon without having to be under the, under the thumb of, of any other company? Or is it because some other reason that's out there? Uh, well, to be honest, I didn't start out developing the tools I am building mm -hmm. with Blender. I started mm -hmm. with FreeCAD. Blender was definitely not the first choice for me uh, because I knew that it was never designed for uh, CAD work. It was really an artist tool. For example, it's excellent as a modeling tool. And I, and I think if you've never learned mesh modeling the way the CG artists do it, uh, that's a fantastic mm -hmm. skill to learn. And, and it will just open your mind to what you can really sculpt in, in, in 3D. 
But then when you have to learn how to make that uh, millimeter accurate, uh, then you have to relearn <laughs> your, your modeling techniques a little mm -hmm. bit, So, uh, w which is possible, but it definitely wasn't geared towards that. So I started with FreeCAD, actually, and FreeCAD is a another an absolutely great platform, uh, open source as well. And of course, it has to be open source, because if it's not open source, you can't work with it, or it's extremely difficult to work with it. Like, for example, Revit is not open source, and as a result, you have multiple maybe i can count maybe four maybe five ifc import export mm -hmm. tools you know five people doubling up their efforts to, to build an import export tool for it um i know one of them is is legally open source but culturally it's not 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 particularly open but in any case uh, that was obviously one of the prerequisites that to build something i needed an open source base otherwise i just can't contribute to it i have to start yeah. from scratch and cad software is hard or you have to go work at their company, right? Like those, those are your two options. Oh, that's true. That 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 is another option, which I wasn't particularly mm -hmm. interested in. And I think we have to admit that the software we use today is difficult. They're difficult things to design. They're difficult things to build. They're not something you can push out in an afternoon. CAD software is extremely tricky. And with with all due respect, there are, of course, we like to complain and gripe about the software, but it's really hard stuff. Yeah, to build. we've talked on this show before about tools that people like to use versus <laughs> these tools that that are uh, you fight. And uh, yeah, I, I, there's definitely two pretty obvious categories there. Yeah, so I, I guess um, it, it's not practical for people to build stuff from scratch, and so I took an existing tool and saw what I could build on top of it, and I started with FreeCAD. And they've been going on for quite some time now and have an excellent and growing team and an existing BIM workbench, they call it. They have different workbenches aligned to different okay. use cases, kind of like a, um, a, uh, a workshop. You know, you have one workbench where you do your metal work, another workbench where you do your mm -hmm. woodwork and, and so on. And so they have different workbenches and they had a BIM workbench and I started with contributing to their code. And I realized that I also had a strong uh, background in Blender and I thought, well, we we already have a team doing all this stuff in FreeCAD. Why not? I attempt to do it also in the Blender world. And that way, instead of just building one product, uh, we have two complementary paradigms. And we still collaborate with the FreeCAD developers. We share code uh, quite a bit, and we all use the underlying uh, same engine that mm -hmm. we're working on. So the only difference is that we have two interfaces. And I think... This is something to highlight that the tool I'm currently building, yes, the, the marketable name for users and, and the, the way we present it to users is the Blender mm -hmm. BIM add-on because that's how you install it and that's where you point and click. But really, the efforts behind it, it is not at all to do with Blender. It's a shared code base that, yes, one uh, instance of it happens to use the Blender mm -hmm. interface, but you could equally well use the guts of Blender BIM in FreeCAD. Or believe it or not, Revit, ArchiCAD, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a bit of an interesting uh, situation we have here. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, what they're doing with Rhino Inside, right? Like it's a <laughs> using the the host platform as a viewer for uh, doing the work within these other smaller tools. Somewhat, somewhat, uh, yes, mm -hmm. somewhat. <laughs> of course, devils in right. the details, but but we mm -hmm. won't get into that. You said you had a history with Blender. Where where did that where that come from? Well, I picked up some 3D modeling and animation back in high school, and I helped run, I think, one of the first iteration of the uh, the world's first Blender model repository, where people could share 3D models with each other that was specific to the Blender file format. And I've just used it as a tool throughout my, my role in, in an architecture practice. It's just been extremely useful. I mean, part of it is visualization, part of it is conceptual uh, design, but I have used it in construction documentation as well. And now with its new abilities, we've used it to design, construct, fabricate, uh, fabrication drawings rather, an actual commercial building. That's great. So w was it because the tool that was already there that you were drawn to it or or were you drawn to it for some other reason? It seems like there's always kind of this this first love uh, 3D app that a lot of architects have, and 
and then they end up sticking with it for a really long time. What what was it? What was that initial spark? Was it just that that was a tool being used or was it something else? No, actually, uh, I grew up in Malaysia and the tool that was being used was a pirated version of Autodesk Maya. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, animation with a pirated version of Macromedia Flash. Uh-huh. So that's what I learned on. I learned on two proprietary pieces of software, which, of course, nobody paid a dime for. Right. But just over time, um, I, I guess it's just in the nature of how I like to use computers and, and know what's happening with them. I, I slowly switched over to Linux. And, of course, these platforms don't work mm-hmm. on Linux. And, and that's another thing. Many of our CAD platforms, you don't realize it. Because you're all stuck in this um, in this bubble of operating system, but once you switch to Linux, you get exposed to a whole other set of mm-hmm. software, and I think Blender was was one of those. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I mean, everybody fights this, and and it seems like the web is starting to provide some potential way out of that operating system specific world, but because of how fast things are being developed for the web now, but. Yeah, I mean that's that's a big deal, especially for for open source software, and it it really seems to kind of go back and re- and reinforce the idea of tinkering and makers and getting under the hood of of the software and doing what you want with it. I mean that had to be a big driver for you as well. It sounds like now it is. Back then, not really, because back then I I didn't know how to code really. I and I and I wanted to tinker, but I but I didn't have any capabilities. So really, the driver was mm. the community. And open source communities are really fascinating. They're they're really welcoming, and you get people who are are in this because they're engaged and opinionated. And it's it's a different crowd too. Uh, let's say, yeah, it's, it's just it's just a completely different crowd. So as as a newcomer, you you'd ask a question, and you'd and you'd have a thousand people in a room, all kind of just clamoring over to to kind of help you or or provide advice and. Passion. There's passion there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely yeah. passion. So the ability to learn is greatly augmented by the support mm-hmm. of the community. The tutorials that were created, the, the instant support. If you have an issue, you can actually talk to the developers yeah. themselves. You're saying, why is this broken? A developer themselves will look at it. It's not a support staff or anybody. It's it's somebody who, who's following a script. It's somebody who really knows things inside out and will teach you the tricks. Yeah, I, I that that's interesting to you know an important concept that it's definitely recognized as well is how important that community is uh and and obviously with with a tool like blender it's got to be the main driver for the direction or directions that the software actually takes absolutely and i think um there was a a recording interview with with ton rudendal who is the um creator of blender and originally many of the directions the company was building blender in uh, we're very different from what how the community built it, and I think he he shows how the community really shows you where your your priorities are to, to to your users, and and I think that's absolutely great. And I've I've taken that to heart with the direction that I now do in my mm-hmm. own development, in that if there is a user request, if a user is trying to solve a problem, that takes priority over mm-hmm. other things. That is what we want to solve. So so let's talk about the blender. BIM's story. So can you just take us down a, a timeline of where it's been and what's going on now, and then and then talk about your vision for the future of Blender BIM? And it, sound, it sounds like you're, you're open to that, but I, I'd be interested to kind of hear a little bit of the history before we talk about where it's possibly headed. Yeah, absolutely. So Blender BIM started, I think, 2019. Um, middle to, to late 2019. And we were designing a small commercial building prototype internally within the company I work for, uh, Lendlease. And it was something that was very, that used a lot of very bespoke geometry. It was not a very BIM heavy building. It's, it's something that was highly geometry focused. It was a, it was a puzzle of a building, not, not so much a, uh, a logistical, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, issue to solve. So we prototyped it quite rapidly using Blender to begin with, and we, and we modeled up the whole building purely as dumb mm-hmm. geometry. It was very detailed, uh, but, but it was pure geometry. They had no uh, smarts, no relationships, no semantics, and so on. And uh, after 
we got to a point we thought, oh, we, we need to document this. We need to get some schedules out and all the usual stuff you need to do to actually make the building happen. And we thought, well, we don't really want to rebuild this in, in BIM software. You know, it's a huge amount of effort and the modeling tools in BIM software are not particularly inspiring. And we thought, well, we have two options. We Option one is we rebuild it in a BIM tool and Revit was the BIM tool, which everybody mm -hmm. had to use because that's what we had licenses for and that's what people were trained with and, and all the sunk costs and all of that. Or option two is we can just add BIM functions to Blender and get around it that way. So we thought, you know, which way is faster? And we thought, well, you know, it's an internal project. We don't have any signed contracts. We're not doing any, you know, there's not much risk. Let's mm -hmm. give it a shot. And we went with option two and we build some um, BIM functionality into Blender. And I think we went off one afternoon and we, we put together a script. It was only, it was less than a hundred lines of code. It was basically, can we get this into IFC? Because we needed an object model. We needed a way to describe all the, the complex BIM relationships. And IFC is pretty much the only uh, thing out there that's capable of doing it to that level of sophistication. And in a standardized manner, I should, man I should add. And we did it. Within an afternoon, we got the model out in IFC and could add some basic relationships. And we thought, oh, well, let's go with it. Let's run with it. And we delivered the whole building. And in the process of delivering that building, we, of course, improved the functionality. And we thought, oh, well, let's package it out, give it out to the public, see what we can do with it. And we gave it out as a hacky, you know, work in progress script, just released. And it grew mm -hmm. from there progressed uh, a good half a year purely as an exporting script. And in that process, we used an underlying engine or a library called IFC OpenShell, which I'm not sure if the listeners are aware of, but it's an IFC library, which is used to work with IFC datasets as well as process uh, geometry described using the IFC schema. And the author of that library had written a Blender importer. And I thought, well, he's written a Blender importer. I've written a Blender exporter. Why not we get the two to mm -hmm. speak together? And so I approached him and I said, well, I'm, I'm building this thing. And he said, oh, great. Come on board. Let's, uh, let's integrate the two. And so I joined uh, work on IFC OpenShell. And now we had an import plus an export. And that progressed and we added more and more import export things until early this year or rather December 2020, we said, okay, we've, we've hit a wall with this import-export. We can't just keep on treating it like an import-export. We actually want to author native BIM data. We can't just be doing stuff in Blender world and exporting and, you know, how we how we tend to collaborate nowadays. We, we import and export, really. It's it's pretty mm -hmm. shameful um, in, in the way that, way, way that collaboration process works. And half your data gets lost when you export and half your data gets lost when you import. Yeah. and it's a bit of a sad story that's that's not the way we should be collaborating file formats are evil right <laughs> well it's not so much the file format the file format is just how you store it there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with files really what's evil is the fact that we have such a complex domain i mean the, the work that architects do is incredibly complex and the work that structural guys do is incredibly complex and i could say repeat the same for every right. single discipline and our way of collaborating is saying okay instead of and, and, and we already have a 20-year-old initiative of industry standard descriptions of how all our data should integrate mm -hmm. together. That exists. It's, it's there. And, and, it's, and it's really spec'd out to quite a level of detail. All of this exists, and, and, our, and our best approach is to press right. an export button. And lose half your data, yeah. And lose half your data. It's, it's, it's crazy. So we, we rebuilt it to work natively. Um, with, with BIM data, and here's where we are now. We're still we're still adding support. It's fascinating that you started this project as like a interoperability tool, right? I mean, <laughs> which is like the probably most uh, fundamental issue that every single firm on the planet has had to deal with. You know, everybody's talking about interoperability and the the loss of data through file translation, and it is such a a huge problem that we're, we continue to talk about today, which is just mind-blowing. Well, actually, we didn't start through interoperability. We started because we needed to deliver mm -hmm. a project, right? We, <laughs> we didn't want to rebuild yeah. our model. 
in another software. But that to get it to that other software for the purpose of documentation, I assume. Uh, yes, yes, correct, uh, uh, and and the data required for it. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds to me like you're doing a lot of kind of behind the scenes data structuring and cleaning, uh, because if if you're authoring that information in one tool or another and kind of pushing it back and forth, you have to maintain the overall structure and the overall quality of that information throughout the process. Is that is that what's kind of driving this this process behind the scenes is keeping that all straight and uh, understandable for all sides of the party there? Well, originally, yes, because originally we built it, as I said, as an import-export tool, and effectively we had a huge translation set of <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, functions, which would translate from one thing to another. And that was a bit of a lost cause. And I don't know why the industry persists with that. But we've completely switched the approach. And now we no longer deal with a lot of data mm-hmm. massaging. There is actually a correct international standard mm-hmm. way to do it. And that's what we rely on. And most of the IFC models produced now, uh, for many of the basics, they, they get that right. We can actually just rely on, on their data. We don't do any massaging mm-hmm. whatsoever. There are a few things which we do have to massage still, simply because vendors have not implemented mm-hmm. them correctly. So a common example is geolocation. Geolocation has been greatly misunderstood and often incorrectly implemented in many of our BIM mm-hmm. applications. So that's something we tend to work around. But on the most part, we don't. Not anymore. Now it's extremely straightforward. There is a, there is a correct way to do it, a foundation way to do it, which covers more use cases than you would actually think you need. So, so it's not as if somebody says, oh, it's too restricted or too limiting. I, that, that argument is somewhat null when you actually dig into the details. It's just a question of doing it and exposing it to the user. So, so what is your vision now that, now that you guys have, it sounds like since in the last four months, rewritten this, so you, you took everything that you learned and you've kind of reapplied it in, a, in a maybe a more modern way of thinking about it where are you headed with it and what are you excited about it's it's a bit hard to say really we have a loose roadmap which is governed generally by what our users have been asking for so one of the things we're currently adding in in the short term are support for authoring structural domain aspects so things like analytical models and uh, structural analysis results and loads and things like that we're also currently working on costing, so cost schedules, cost items, quantity takeoff tools, as well as uh, sequencing, so uh, work breakdown structures and calendars and timetables and, and Gantt chart generation and animation and mm. stuff like that. So we're starting to branch across a few other disciplines now. And I think we've already demonstrated in the first year that it's possible to work with IFC natively. We no longer need to do any more importing, exporting. And we've also demonstrated successfully, I believe, that there is an extremely robust international standard way of doing these things. You don't need to reinvent the wheel with your own object mm-hmm. model again. There's been many, many years of work gone into this and continuing to go into this. And it's a really hard job. I, I, I liken this to the early days of the web, when the web is it's, it's a is a gunky mess of of interconnected uh, standards really is how the, is how the web works there's a lot of technologies mm-hmm. thrown into the web and during the early days if you if you remember you had things like works best in internet mm-hmm. explorer because of this exact same situation that people were not following the standards particularly well and that gave the standards a very bad name and you had to use a particular vendor to get slightly better results with it but as the web matured and we're talking about a technology mature in the technology industry. So this is as fast as it can go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, these are the experts in technology. It took a while for that to mature, but it did. And the web now is, it's, well, to call it a beauty is, is, is an interesting thing, but, but it's certainly... Uh, it's a beautiful mess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful mess is, right. is what it is. It, it, it gets things done. It, it lets people speak to each other in an extremely reliable way. And and we know how to speak to it, and we we're all speaking the same language, and it was and, and it wasn't, and, and it's not an import export. It's just just that that mentality is is completely outdated, and that's where we are right now with native IFC. 
we have the language of our industry. It has been developed by standards bodies. It has been developed. Um, so, so there's two aspects of the development here. There's, there's, de there's the development by the political side. It's the adoption and ability to, to get it internationally recognized as a standard and the ability for governments to be signing up for it and inserting it into contracts. And that's already happening. But then there's the other side, which is the technical side, which is people wanting to develop a schema that truly represents the language of our industry in its many, many currently fractured mm -hmm. disciplines. And we have demonstrated that that is a robust foundation and it's possible to be authoring natively and, and natively speaking that language and building an entire cross-disciplinary domain model in that mm -hmm. language. And I think those are the things that we're currently demonstrating and we'll want to continue to demonstrate in the near future. So for example, uh, we will build things like multi-user support. So people simultaneously working uh, via the, the IFC language, as it were, or a set of agreements across different applications, all working collaboratively on the same uh, mm -hmm. data set. We will demonstrate file-based versus non-file-based because that's just a matter of preference. It doesn't really change the underlying, um, the things that really matter. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just a the thing on top to get those naysayers mm -hmm. out of the way. We will demonstrate 2D drawings uh, in a much more robust manner because uh, that's another huge uh, misconception and uh, a deliverable that many of us still need to practically work yeah. with today. So... That's the sort of immediate term. It's it's going across disciplines. It's it's showing that we can robustly work with this as a native authoring tool and bringing it across other tools, all simultaneously working together. But of course, everything I say right now is is completely wrong because if a user comes tomorrow and we work and we figure out, hey, what he's saying is is, is correct, you know, that's actually what we should be working on. It will yeah. change, and that's the way it should be. <laughs> Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. One of the things I really got out of the conversation that I had with Boris, the CEO of ArcIT, was that they are dedicated to the design community. They have three guiding principles listed on the front page of their website, and I wanted to dig in for a moment into those. The first one is that they are committed to being the expert. You've hired them to understand their business and to make the best IT decisions for you. So when you work with Arc IT, you will only work with industry-experienced IT professionals. The second guiding principle is that they are responsive. They understand that in the architecture and design world, deadlines are everything. If you have an issue and you have a deadline coming up, they'll find a solution. And the third guiding principle is that they are proactive. They'll always make sure that your systems are up to date so unplanned issues won't come up as well as meet with you regularly to explain new technology advances within the industry. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further they become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com arc-like architecture in the middle 
and click Work With Us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, I didn't want to gloss over the fact that you said you listen to what the, the users are asking for, and that becomes the priority. I think it's the it's becoming the norm with these very you know small tech companies who are solving interesting problems, but it's not the norm for the big software companies, right? It's that's driven by a much different narrative around shareholder value and bells and whistles and press releases and things like that that are not typically the things that the people who actually use the software are asking for, but an entirely different set of eyeballs. Correct. And in fact, more than just listening to the users, we actually try to teach the users. We say, hey, why not you code it yourself? And and, um, and then they look over their shoulder and say, are you talking to me? <laughs> well, that's that's true. And, and many of them do. But that's but that's the thing. Sometimes you get somebody who, who doesn't. And, and, it, and it's those people who, who doesn't. And I think that the, you know, people learning how to code in schools nowadays, uh, you'll get more and more of those people in the future. And it's inevitable. They're up for the challenge. Yeah. That the average person you speak to, that's right. Mm-hmm. They'll be up for it. They'll, they'll know how to do it. It's, it, it's an interesting shift that we're definitely seeing. I, I agree. Uh, it is really interesting to see how many people are willing to take up on the challenge of solving problems through an art form like coding, right? Like it, they're making something, they're making something valuable. And it doesn't mean it has to live on forever. It can just live for that one project or that one thing within the project. But it's still fascinating to watch that shift happen in our profession. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to kind of making a tool that talks to other tools, uh, what it sounded like very much like what you were describing was a web browser, right? It's, it's basically rendering code and it's agnostic to the code, right? It's That's the idea of a browser, right? You're going to throw HTML at it. You're going to throw CSS at it. You're going to throw JavaScript at it. It's going to render, hopefully um, accurately, what the code is saying underneath. And it's interesting kind of how well that reinforces the idea that it's actually just the data that matters right when we talk about bim most people misunderstand that and think you're talking about the tool and not the output or the the model itself so when you talk about you know there there's an old saying you know all roads lead to bim and uh i think that this really does apply to that because what you're saying is it's the data that's the most important thing and this leads me to think about some of the challenges that we're up against you know, working in the industry and actually seeing clients in their contracts demand a certain file format is kind of mind blowing to me. I mean, are are you guys seeing that as well and and thinking about how how to go against that grain and, and create a community that reinforces that that's not the right information to ask for? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, right now a lot of contracts they they actually do specify IFC as a file format. <laughs> and it's uh and maybe that's a step in the right direction, but it certainly doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that they, that they know what they're getting. I mean, it, it's just a step up from specifying a proprietary file format, like a, like a Revit file, which many people do, to specifying an open for, file format, which they think, oh, the only difference is that now I can open this with a free viewer rather than paying an Autodesk license. And it, it's fine. I mean, that's it's... I understand why they're doing it, um, but it also, it's not the complete story. We need to start having people understand that there is a client-server happening here, and the servers are what create our data or manage our data, and the clients are simply ways to view them. And in that way, you really want to make sure that your, your data is actually correct. You know, the file format is just the way of storing it. Whether you're storing it in a a database or in a or on a, a single file or 10 files or or a json thing or a step thing or an ascii thing or a binary thing it, it's all just it's just a method of storage and ifc supports all those methods of storage you can store in whatever you want really the underlying data is extremely important and the issue is that people don't know how to check this underlying data they get a bim model and they don't know how to audit whether things are done correctly we don't have the ability to audit this data. And people don't hide that fact. They get the file <laughs> because that's what they asked for. And they put it in a, lo- in a drawer. And they, they don't they even know it. why they were asking for it. They just thought they were supposed to. Th- that's right. And 
and, and they don't know how to check what's in it. And you and I, I mentioned some contracts, but I'll, I'll I'll take that back. Maybe I'm not allowed to talk about those things. But certainly, you look at the average IFC model, and in half of them, the project name is wrong. Like it's, it's clear that no love or care has been given to the data at all. And part of it's not the user's fault. I mean, users want to get these things correct. It's just that the current approaches that are being forced upon us almost by the vendors, which is to export and import, is impractical. Imagine you say to a user, all right, fine, you know, you're contractually required to submit this, uh, submit this IFC data set. And in order to do that, you have to convert your data model from your proprietary one to the open standard one. And here are 15 pages of, of dialogue buttons and, and mapping tables and translator options, some of which you have really no idea. And the way to learn it is either through you know, undocumented um, guides or, or random YouTube tutorials, which quickly get out of date. And the one we ship is not the same version as the one they're talking about. And and the, and then for in the case of Revit, there's five different exporters, and it's and and maybe somebody recommends if you want to go to that platform, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. You use this particular importer. I am not surprised that users are getting this wrong, because we inherently don't want to get this wrong. We want clean data. We want beautiful BIM models, but unfortunately, the vendors have stopped that, because their view of interoperability is an import-export mapping table. And, well, we can do better than that. <laughs> we can absolutely do better than that. Yeah, that is a big deal. I think, you know, this this leads me into, you know, some additional challenges that, that I've definitely experienced and seen, which is, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, we've talked a little bit about switching costs or sunk costs, you know, and there's a lot to unpack there as far as, you know, content and assets and training and consultant collaboration and all of those things. And it sounds like a lot of these are actually being addressed. But for some reason, there's kind of a comfort taken in a large multi-billion dollar company that the software is going to be there when I kind of feel like it's exactly almost the opposite, right? Like when a, when these high-profile companies change their mind about something, they don't have to answer to their customers. They don't have to keep things in play for their customers and what we're hearing from you, Blender's been around for over 20 years, and we're seeing that dependability and the extensibility for you to write your own tools within it and on top of it and, and using it, and that it's not going anywhere because the community owns it, not one entity who can decide to shutter it tomorrow. But that is a mentality that we definitely see, and it's a big challenge right in the in the industry is, is that whole perception around what a viable software company and the the value that they quote unquote brings to the table uh, it's it's kind of a backwards relationship i can only agree <laughs> i can only absolutely agree and 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 definitely i do want to emphasize that open source software doesn't disappear particularly easy once it's hit a particular rate of momentum yeah they don't go away <laughs> there's enough community to keep it going for a long time yeah, and I think, you know, one of the other challenges that I see is just switching. I guess this is more of a generational issue that I see is you know, people don't, once they hit a certain kind of threshold within their career or whatever, it's uh, they see it as a disadvantage to learning something new because they're so fast at what they already know. And my experience tells me from what I've seen is that they feel that disadvantage to youth when learning a new tool because they're not seen as the power user anymore and the one who is the go-to anymore. And so, and they don't like being perceived that way. Right. So they, they feel, I, I think that's when it start you start to feel like kind of that obsolescence creeping in and I'm, I'm, you know, mid forties. So I'm kind of speaking from experience there as well. It's like, there comes a time where you just don't pick up the software as fast, and it is a little bit threatening when these new tools come along. And it's pretty crazy, right? Because the writing's on the wall. Revit's been around for over 20 years, too, and it, it feels slow to use. And when something feels slow to use, it seems like there's some structural issues going on there, right? And that aren't going to get fixed with little patches here and there. That We've all seen how these tools are just 
you know, they have code that is so old and so broken that they're not fixing the problems everybody's asking them to fix anymore. They're just adding, you know, quote unquote, new features on top of. So I, I just think that there's there are challenges like that. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, because you're, as you try to kind of make the case for Blender and Blender BIM, what are you seeing as far as switching versus, you know, new adoption or just adoption in general? When, when Blender BIM was created, or the Blender BIM add-on was created, rather, we just kind of threw it out there. Didn't really expect much from it. A lot of people immediately jumped on it. They were already looking for this for a long time. And we also helped start the OSArch community or the open source architecture community. And now the the forums, for example, it's a thousand members strong. We've got 40 to 50 people online at any one time discussing this stuff. So I think there's already an appetite in the industry for people to want to try out new things and are unafraid to experiment, even though this stuff is clearly not production ready in many cases. I mean, people have made it production ready, and I'm, I'm, I'm constantly surprised with how people are using the BlenderBim add-on in production workflows. And I use it myself, but I, I always think I can do that because when something goes wrong, I know how to work around it. But there are other people you know, use, using it to deliver a commercial output in all sorts of disciplines. Uh, one example I give is that in one of the early releases, maybe it was only a few months after the first release, Somebody was use it, using the add-on to automatically process compactor machine uh, every single day. And you were like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, okay, <laughs> a feature roadmap, uh, top of the list is compactor machine <laughs> processing. <laughs> like, that's why I built this. That's why I started this. But, and I'm constantly, constantly surprised by the way people are using this add-on. So, but they're on the bleeding edge, right? Like the, that is super bleeding edge stuff, yeah. That's right. These are the power users. These are the people who want things to bleed, who want enough rope to hang themselves. And and I'm costing the net wide, right? This is the entire internet right. we're talking about. It's not um, Bob's select few um, URR selected alpha tester program right. thing. So that's a bit of a, a selection bias happening there. But I think if I look at the, the, the software industry or even the CG industry, you have people who know fundamentals, Right, like I said, the example with mm-hmm. Pixar before, you, you're either a good artist and have mm-hmm. these fundamental, an eye for these things, and the tool doesn't matter. And same with, with software, you you either know the fundamentals of programming and the language doesn't matter. I mean, I've switched languages mm-hmm. many times. Uh, when I started the Blender BIM add-on, I did not code Python. Many, a lot of this is coded mm-hmm. in Python. I didn't code it before, and and now the whole thing is built on Python. And it's the same with many other programmers. They don't say, oh, I know this language. You can say, I'm uncomfortable with this language. is fine, and I can type it immediately, but I know the fundamentals. And in the software industry, you're always learning new tools. For, Of course, there are people who aren't, but for, for the most people, people are always keeping mm-hmm. up to date with, with new tools all the time. And, and the fact that there's a new technology or a new system doesn't matter to you mm-hmm. anymore. It's not the point because you have the fundamentals. You know where to find things. You know the UX paradigms. You know the data schema paradigms. And that is what really matters. But I say that, but at the same time, those are the more outspoken ones. You have this large nine-to-five army, as it were, of people who don't care or care less about these fundamentals and just kind of want to learn the tool, do a good job at what they're paid to do, and yeah. that's it. They're not intrinsically motivated in that right. field. And that is what we're dealing with in the AC industry, because that is really the majority. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? Because we make things for a living, um, but not necessarily the tools that we use to do our job. Absolutely. And I think, again, I, I see it as a vendor problem, personally. Vendors do not market themselves as simply being ways to augment our workflows vendors market themselves as the platform to base everything on our business decisions on to handcuffs our design and workflows and pipelines too that's not the way it should be because if you if you present it that way of course bob who has been drawing for 50 years is going to be i'm not going to learn that tool i'll just continue drawing somebody else will draft it up for me whereas if you say no no bob this is simply a way to speed up your drawing on paper that's a proper way of talking about it. It's not 
as a completely new shiny platform which replaces everything you've been doing on paper because the principles on paper mm-hmm. still apply. And this is the same thing I get with with things like the IFC object model. People say, oh, I need to learn this IFC thing and and learn what a what an IFC wall is. I'm saying, you already know what a wall yeah. is. <laughs> this one has the three letters IFC in front of it. Just call your wall a wall. I mean, it's, you're not learning anything new here. You've already been calling your Revit walls walls. And it's just that this is the standard way of doing it. And and the data you're putting into, like let's say you need to fill out a facility management um, and, and an asset register or something at various stages or of, of, of the program, you're not doing any extra work. You're already classifying things into this and that and creating schedules for this and that. It's exactly the same work you've always been doing. And so this is merely a standardized way of helping you do what you already mm-hmm. do instead of here is a platform which you know com- you have to completely uh, learn the ways of doing things in this platform and it doesn't speak to another platform which is ridiculous yeah. it's a wall of the wall of the wall it's, buildings have fundamentals there are walls there are doors there's, there's objects in rooms there are <laughs> rooms on levels and levels in buildings and there's a yeah. there's a building the concept of a building that none of that ever changes so i should expect no matter what program i'm on to be able to identify walls and doors and rooms and, and all the rest. It's interesting, it. right? Because we see this uh, kind of mentality, which I think is a very closed mentality. You, you spoke a minute ago about intrinsic motivation. And I mean, there's there's open-mindedness and closed-mindedness. And um, there's it's two very different points of view. And, and thinking about standards as handcuffs is one of those kind of closed-minded ways of thinking. That That's how I categorize it. I think the way that I see standards, like the ones you're talking about as like that stuff has been figured out so that you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. So that you can worry about more important things and not continue to reinvent that wheel over and over and over again. But it seems uh, there is something definitely in our profession that I don't know if it's rewarding for people or if it's a badge of honor or what it is, but this continual kind of reinvention of the same tools every firm's inventing the same tools is probably a direct correlation to the the closed tools that we use um, there's there's not an encouragement of collaboration amongst firms or our profession to co-develop things that that's what's so different about the open software community and, and this mentality that we're talking about through standardization as freedom from these these handcuffs and it does enable us to work on more important problems so that we can progress and move this whole thing forward. Absolutely. It's, it's fundamentally a cultural shift, which needs to happen in the industry and, and it, it, and it will inevitably happen that I'm, I'm not worried about at all. It happening sooner rather than later is a nice thing, but it will inevitably happen because right now the things we're doing are, are laughable. We're competing on whose description of a wall is better. <laughs> right. <laughs> or who will draw it for cheaper. It, it's it's interesting, you know, because I, I just wonder if the the real holdback is just the there's several things within our profession that don't enable the blinders to come off. And I just wonder, you know, this this kind of deadline driven everything. I have no time to learn this priority of efficiency over um, ingenuity and innovation is is really disturbing on many levels in a in a very creative and very complex profession, you know, an industry because it's not just our profession, it's the way that our profession engages with these other ones and it's so it is so complex on so many levels. Yes, and that's that's a tricky thing. So when I originally came up with the Blender BIM add-on and it started to grow, I realized, hey, you know, this could get pretty big. And I thought to myself, going to be different this time am i just recreating the existing tools based on open standards and and free and open source is that really all it is Uh, but it isn't and of course one aspect of it is the technical aspect which means that we want to design this new system in a way that gives the user freedom to create the pipeline the way they see fit so so right now that that's one of the things i see is that the vendors heavily influence the workflow whether whether it's intentional or not the fact is that the tools you use heavily 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 influence how you deliver a building (laughs) 
<laughs> and so when these new tools are, are designed, they were designed from the ground up so that, like I said before, like Blender is just an interface. It doesn't have to be that way. You can turn off half the things if you don't want them to be there. And the tools have to be highly flexible and modular so that the user can have a vision of what their design process should be like. And then the tool allows you to realize that vision or is flexible enough so that you can build the custom tool you need to make that vision a reality. And this is happening on the OS Arch uh, community. You see people discussing how would we design in the future, and you see people, the little experiments happening where people just kind of sketching walls, and these sketches turn into uh, BIM objects, or people saying, all right, instead of designing buildings from walls and doorknobs outside, and let's, let's design spaces and then and then use semantic relationships to generate the details in between. And these are incredibly, like they, they turn the, the way we design on the head. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but what I'm saying is that because we've written the tools in such a flexible way, you can do both or three or four or anything or come up with your own. And at the same time, the first thing is that we don't know what it is. And it's too arrogant to say that uh, this is the correct way to that your workflows should be. The second thing is that we want to build tools which let us be more aware of our environment to make a more informed choice. Currently, all our tools are siloed. Analysis in another discipline to inform your decision is a one-week turnaround. It's ridiculous. And, and obviously, the, the name drop here is sustainability. To do a sustainability analysis on your design takes time or somebody sells to you that it doesn't take time and it's a push of a button but it's a black box and you shouldn't actually trust it but that will get sidetracked here <laughs> and people don't necessarily know how to read the data that it's output from it they just see it as a checkbox that they have checked yeah, yeah. Right? but we won't get sidetracked here the point is that do we really want to be building the same buildings faster is that what right. the world needs more buildings faster and i think the answer is no. We don't need more buildings faster. We need to think a little bit more about what we are doing to our built mm -hmm. environment. The ecosystem of our built environment is as every bit as balanced as a natural ecosystem now because it has that much impact on the world. Like the forest, the clouds, the seas, the cities is now an ecosystem, a biome, and something that we are responsible for as the designers and engineers and builders. Yeah. And we can only solve this together. We need tools that bring in dimensions of the other BIM models that are not siloed. I talked about costing and sequencing earlier on. That's one tiny part of the puzzle of practicalities of making this, these things happen. We need more integrated tools. And the only way to achieve that the only way is to speak the same language. I couldn't have said it better myself. That <laughs> I totally believe what you're saying. It's a it's a great great statement. That seems like a great place to kind of wrap up. And I I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listening community where they can find out more about your OS Arch community, what you're doing with Blender BIM add on. Uh, blender itself so is there some places that you can send people on the web to find out more and to follow along with what you're doing yeah absolutely the thing to follow is osarch uh, opensourcearchitecture.org and that is a community of people who are looking to collaborate more digitally in not i know the names is architecture but it covers all the disciplines really and there is a forum, a news site, a wiki where we do knowledge sharing on open standards and open source software. We've recently launched a learn.osr.org, which hosts video tutorials for those uh, where wiki text gets a little bit dull and would prefer to watch videos. There's also a live chat. So around 40 or 50 of us online at any one time come and drop in and say hello and you'll find many developers as well, as well as power users. And um, yeah, so that would be the place to find out more and keep up to date because maybe Blender BIM will be one of those that might solve a lot of problems, but 
it'll be too arrogant to say that it's the only one that's going to solve it. It's a big, big world. <laughs> There's so many things to solve. There's so many disciplines. I'm just an architect with my coloring pencils. <laughs> we need more than that. <laughs> we need the coloring pencils, though. And I'm a huge advocate for people being a part of designing the future of our profession. And this is a place where you can contribute and make that happen. I mean, this is a fantastic resource that is bigger than any one team or any one office. Or This is a much larger community that can make a big difference. So I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation today and to share this information. And all of the links that you talked about will be in the show notes so that people can just simply click on that to learn more. So Dion, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Troxel podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit. That's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.